Welcome to The Stone Wolves, a Galactic Football League novella. Written by Scott Sigler and J.C. Hutchins. Performed by Scott Sigler. The Stone Wolves is also available as a Kindle ebook from Amazon.com or as a full-length audiobook from Audible.com. To find links for those items, go to scottsigler.com slash thestonewolves, one word. Hello, junkies. Welcome to episode 18 of The Stone Wolves. In news very closely related to The Stone Wolves, I am now 90% done with GFL Book 7's second draft. 135,000 words in. I'm hoping to finish at about 150,000 words, but that remains to be seen. It, it might go a little longer than that, because sometimes girth happens. Regardless of length, though, I believe I will finish it some point in the beginning of February, which means that in February, I will start the Crypt Book 1. So cross your fingers that I get that done and I can move on to that project that you and I have been waiting for for such a long time. If you are listening to this book, you are obviously a fan of my work. Consider joining A Real Girl herself and I on the weekly Sigler in Place live streams Wednesdays at 6 p.m. Pacific Time, 9 p.m. Eastern. We stream live at youtube.com slash scottsigler, twitch.tv slash scottsigler, and facebook.com slash scottsigler. And if you can't catch those live, they are up at YouTube, and they are all up at Twitch, and they are all up at Facebook. You can watch them as your schedule permits. So come hang out with a whole bunch of junkies in the chat room. A and I are on camera. Often the Dogs of Doom are on camera as well. And we all four focus on bringing the positivity. So if you're having a hell of a day, a hell of a week, a hell of a year, whatever, our goal is to put a smile on your face and send you back into the world a little better prepared to handle all of the crap. Let's get you caught up on the Stone Wolves, and then we're all going to go open a can of SpaghettiOs. Previously on the Stone Wolves, the crew of the Olren broke into the Kretorakian prison known as the Borehole in an attempt to rescue Redwire, an old buddy of Killian's. They had to fight their way out, and in the process, survive a deep betrayal with the prison and the betrayal and casualties in the rear view, the Oleran crew licks their wounds and figures out what to do next. Chapter 15. Night Flyers. We'll get you in the rejuve tank as soon as we can, Killian said. Redwire was sitting on one of the medbay's two hospital beds. Once upon a time, there had been four beds, but Killian had removed two of them to make room for a beans-installed rejuve tank, a tank that held an unconscious Aya Omiata. No rush, Redwire said. She earned it. One wouldn't know it at first glance, Killer, but that girl is tougher than a coffin nail. We've both seen hardcore operators who couldn't have done what she did back there. Killian looked at the tank at the girl with the purple skin immersed neck-deep in pink gel. Redwire was right. Aya had delivered on multiple levels, not the least of which was shrugging off a bullet wound long enough to blast Fanaka. If there had ever been any doubt as to Aya's value as a permanent member of the Oleron, that doubt was gone. 
I don't even know where we are, Redwire said. Am I officially escaped yet? Killian started applying another nanosite bandage to one of the swollen bruises on Redwire's face. The quiescence is a double-edged sword, he said. We had a big head start on any borehole ships. Since the dead zone blocks anything but limited range line of sight, we'll reach the big rock punch zone before they will. The Oleron's impulse drives are crazy powerful. At relativistic speeds, we're faster than almost anything short of warships. There are no punch points between the borehole and Big Rock, which means we'll get there first. The bats wanted the borehole in the middle of nowhere, and they wanted almost no traffic going out to it. So unless we stumble headlong into a bat destroyer, we should be able to get to Ionath before anyone outside the prison even knows you're gone. Ionath, where Quentin lived. Was he there now? Probably not. After the attack and the touchback, hopefully Quentin was smart enough to lie low. And it didn't matter anyway. It wasn't like Killian could pop in for a surprise visit. Hey there, son I haven't seen for 24 years. How about a beer with your old man? Killian finished the bandage application, grabbed another. Carmago had really done a number on Redwire's face. But they'll come after me, Redwire said. And you, right? Maybe. I have blocked their sensors when we came in. They don't know the Oleron was involved. Shortly after we left, Beans vented Fanaka's ship and set the punch drive to self-destruct. We put her body parts in there, and your blood. The bat patrols from the borehole should find that wreckage. If all goes well, they think you escaped on that ship, it blew up, and you're dead. Redwire's eye twitched once, his only tell that Killian had pressed too hard on the wound. And if things do not go well? Then they keep looking for you, Killian said. Hard to say. Will Thorn be fooled? Thorn, the ghost from the past. I don't know, and I don't care, Killian said. Redwire thought on that for a moment. The bats control the space around Ionath, he said. We're going to be stuck there for a day after we punch out from Big Rock, assuming we make Big Rock at all. Once those fighters reach Big Rock and the word spreads of my escape, bats and system police at Ionath could still nab us, couldn't they? Your old pal has a trick up his sleeve, Killian said. We won't be in the Concordia for a day. We won't even be there 15 minutes. You have another ship lined up? Nope, Killian said. We have this ship lined up. It's got dual punch drives. We hit Ionath. We're out 15 minutes later and on our way to Chichana in the Sklorno dynasty. Red's brow furrowed. Did you say dual punch drives? Killian nodded. That's impossible, Redwire said. Killian nodded again. I agree. And yet Beans designed it and made it work. Red was quiet for a moment. So you have one of the fastest relativistic ships around. And you can do two full punches in the same day? No wonder you've become such a successful smuggler, killer. Killian laughed. Well, successful might be a bit much. As he moved on to the next wound, Redwire glanced around the small med bay. That rejuve tank looks like it was jammed in here with a shoehorn, he said. And uh, are those old flat panel mounts with the flat panels removed? How old is this ship anyway? 
Killing had tuned out the flat panel brackets, as well as the brackets that bolted the rejuve tank to the deck and the dozens of other alterations made to the med bay. Older than us, Killian said, and that's saying something. He knew that neither of them looked their age. Killian had trouble remembering just how old he really was. Redwire was a veteran of the takeover, yet due to decades of forced cold sleep, he didn't look a day over 35. This is so hard to process, the man said, staring off. I haven't seen you or Fanaka in decades. You show up to break me out of prison. And now she's gone. After all we lived through, she dies rescuing me. Sort of, I suppose. She turned on us. On us. I know people change, but that... It seems impossible. Killian waited for his anger to bubble up to feel rage over the brutal betrayal of someone he'd once loved with everything that he was, but that fury refused to surface. She said Thorne had her kids, Killian said. Maybe that wasn't an excuse, but it was a justification, at least to some degree. Redwire nodded. Yeah, she did say that. Think it's true? Killian reached into his pants pocket, pulled out the small bag he'd taken from Fanaka's corpse. He opened it, spilled the contents into his palm. Seven gemstones. Four white, two red, one black, sparkled in the medbay light. Wow, Redwire said. I guess she was paid well to stab us in the back. Sadness and anger in his words. Killian felt the same. I think this wasn't for her, he said. It was payment for the inside contact, Dr. Sackacorn. Do I believe that Thorne had Fanaka's kids? As strange as it sounds to say this about someone who lied to me for days, yeah, I do. If I'd been in her shoes, well, I don't know what I would have done. Redwire let out a slow breath. Yeah, you do, he said. It's been a long time, but we both know what Thorne is capable of. If he had my sons, I honestly can't say I would have done anything different than what Fanaka did. Redwire's simple statement seemed to fill an empty space inside Killian. They both loved Fanaka. They always would. She'd done what she'd had to do to protect those closest to her. That didn't justify her actions, but Killian understood. So did Redwire. They could both forgive her. Speaking of family, Redwire said, I have to figure out how to get back to mine. A dangerous idea. Red, you're an escaped convict from... Yeah, yeah, I know, Redwire said. Trust me, I'm aware I can't exactly go home again. I need to at least find a way to let him know I'm alive. An idea that was only slightly less dangerous than him going home in person. Maybe Aya can come up with something, Killian said when she's back on duty. Redwire glanced at the unconscious girl in the rejuve tank. Maybe. Better to be alive and not be able to let people know right away than to be dead, yeah? Anyway, those gems Fanaka had are worth a fortune. What are you going to do with them? Red knew it might be weeks or longer before he could safely contact his family and he wanted to change the subject. Killian let him. I don't know, he said, putting the gems back in the bag and the bag back in his pocket. To be honest, 
Business hasn't been all that great lately. I have a fuel bill that you wouldn't believe. I could use some of this to pay off debts. His own words, echoed in his ears, made him feel small, worthless. Or I could find Fanaka's kids, he said. Give the gems to them. Redwire gave his head a slow shake. You know her children are dead, he said. You know what Thorn will do to them when she doesn't deliver me to him. Yes, Killian had known that, but perhaps he hadn't wanted to admit it to himself. If he knew where to start looking for Fanaka's kids, it was probably already too late, and he didn't even have a clue where to begin the search. Druge Thorn was a lot of things, but he was also true to his word. He made good on all threats. Always. And Killian could have killed him. Choices have consequences. Whenever Killian was involved, those consequences seemed to be death. Yeah, I know, he said. Thorn's the reason I had to leave my family. He's the reason my wife is dead. He's the reason one of my sons is dead, and maybe my daughter. Ah, there was that rage bubbling up again, making Killian feel at home. Being enraged was his comfort zone. Redwire put a hand on Killian's shoulder. You've got one son that's still alive, Keller. And what a fine man he turned out to be. The rage subsided. Killian wondered if he could get emotional whiplash from his unpredictable mood swings. Thank you, he said. Thank you for looking out for him. Thank you for giving him guidance when I could not. Redwire laughed, then winced from pain. Oh, ouch, he said. Try not to say funny things until I get an hour in the rejuve tank, okay? What was funny about what I said? The part about giving Quentin Barnes guidance, Redwire said. As if anyone could. That kid is so bullheaded. He does what he wants. In that way, he's a lot like his father. An unexpected swell of pride. And also a pang of despair. Killian had failed his family. He'd failed to be there for them as a father should. If he is like me, then he listened to you, Red. At some level, anyway. Redwire slid off the table. Maybe. Even if he didn't, I don't think it would have mattered. Your son is special, Killer. And I'm not just talking about his abilities on the field. There is no one like him anywhere. He's the one. More emotional whiplash. Joy at hearing a trusted friend say Quentin had turned out all right after all. And sadness that Redwire was still pining for some mysterious messiah to appear and make the galaxy's problems go away. He's a football player, Killian said. Let him be that. Redwire considered this for a moment, then nodded. Your house, your rules. Not even close to an, okay, I won't bring it up again. Redwire, always the master of the non-denial denial. In the climate-ravaged world of 2072, the city of Pura stands as a miraculous green haven. Pura is a geoengineered paradise that protects its fortunate residents from the global catastrophes of heat domes, fires, floods, and droughts. In a time when the world outside is unsafe, 
It's vital for Piura's existence that people rally behind the purpose of the city, and Demetria Lopez, head of the city's public relations, tirelessly promotes its idyllic image. But when she stumbles on a dark secret that, if exposed, would be the downfall of Piura's existence, she must decide who and what she's willing to protect. From Wondery, the makers of Academy and Dr. Death, The Last City stars actors Ray Seahorn, Jeannie Tirado, and Maury Sterling. Follow The Last City on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of The Last City early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus. As a podcast network, our first priority has always been audio and the stories we're able to share with you. But we also sell merch, and organizing that was made both possible and easy with Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell and grow at every stage of your business, from the launch your online shop stage all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. They have an all-in-one e-commerce platform and in-person POS system, so wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. With the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. Shopify has allowed us to share something tangible with the podcast community we've built here, selling our beanies, sweatshirts, and mugs to fans of our shows without taking up too much time from all the other work we do to bring you even more great content. And it's not just us. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Shopify is also the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash realm, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash R-E-A-L-M now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash realm. As a podcast network, our first priority has always been audio and the stories we're able to share with you. But we also sell merch, and organizing that was made both possible and easy with Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell and grow at every stage of your business, from the launch your online shop stage all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. They have an all-in-one e-commerce platform and in-person POS system, so wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. With the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. Shopify has allowed us to share something tangible with the podcast community we've built here, selling our beanies, sweatshirts, and mugs to fans of our shows without taking up too much time from all the other work we do to bring you even more great content. And it's not just us. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Shopify is also the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Because businesses that grow grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash realm, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash R-E-A-L-M now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. 
shopify.com slash realm. What do you know about Thorn, Red? Why did he go to such lengths to get at you? Redwire took a moment to answer. Because Thorn has to be the architect. We don't have identities of the main players involved. There's also someone called the Broker, who's in charge of the whole operation, and an agent called the Emissary, who is a go-between for the Architect and the Broker. The Architect, Killian said. Drew's Thorn is the one building that superweapon? You know about it? Killian shrugged. We only know what Fanaka told us, that there's a weapon way more powerful than nukes, that the Vermada is building it, and that you've got coded plans to it, and that the cipher for that code is inside your big white melon. Redwire nodded, but stared off, as if he'd only partially heard Killian. The date, Redwire said. What's the date? Killian told him. He hadn't thought it was possible for Redwire's face to go any whiter than it already was, and yet it did. I didn't know I was in the borehole that long, he said. The days kind of run together when they're electrocuting you every few hours. The superweapon, it might be finished. If not, it will be finished very soon. Killer, I need your help. Killian's heart sank. He looked at the rejuve tank, holding his newest, youngest crew member. I've already helped, he said. It didn't go well, and it could have turned out worse. Whatever you need to do, you do it. I don't care about this superweapon. You better start, Karen. We don't know exactly what the weapon is, but we know what the Vermada calls it. The Cruncher. They aren't developing this thing on their own. The Cruncher is designed and financed by whoever the hell is backing the Vermada. The Puppet Masters. The ones throwing around all the money. The ones who've been hiding in the shadows for decades. The ones responsible for the Fishers that had ruined the Guild. They were the ones responsible for letting Thorn ascend. Which meant they were the ones ultimately responsible for the death of Constance Carbonaro, of Quincy Carbonaro, of Quade Carbonaro. That rage tried to flare up again, but Killian slammed it back down into place, into the forever dark where it belonged. I don't want to know any of this, he said. I just want to get back to my old life. There will be no life for anyone if we don't stop this thing. The broker is at the top of all of this. The broker is the one communicating directly with these mysterious puppet masters. The broker. A dumb name. Kind of on the nose, don't you think? Whatever, killer, Redwire said. Look, you've got to help me. We don't know what the cruncher is, but our intel says it can destroy an entire planet. The Vermada with a weapon that powerful? You know damn well they will use it as soon as they can set one off to establish its power, and then they will make demands. If it works, it's a game-changer. Stopping this thing and whoever's behind it represents the reason you joined the guild in the first place. This is our duty. Killian had given enough, had lost enough. He didn't need a lecture on duty. And what if they use it on Kretorok, Red? Breaking the bat's control over the galaxy was the real reason I joined the guild. The reason you joined the guild. And the rest of the Stone Wolves as well. Those shucking bats killed millions in the takeover. 
What if the Vermada used this cruncher on Kretorak and the Empire is broken forever? What if that happens and we get what we wanted all along? Aya lifted her head and opened her eyes, sloshing a glob of rejuve gel over the edge to slide down the tank's metal side, leaving a glistening pink trail in its wake. There are billions of sentient beings on Kretorak, she said. The vast majority of them are civilians. Just because we never see them doesn't mean they're not there, doesn't mean they deserve to die. Killian felt his face flush hot, a feeling he wasn't used to. The kid was right, obviously. How long have you been listening? Long enough, Aya said. So have we, Skipper. Beans' voice, coming from the med bay speaker foam. Killian's face grew even hotter. And I suppose we mean Zan is listening as well? I would like to point out that you did not order us to not listen, Zan said. And now that we have heard, I believe it is time for us all to speak. Aya, since you are alert enough to levy moral judgments, you are well enough to join us. Everyone in the rumpus room in 15 minutes. Redwire glanced at Killian. I thought you were in command here. Only sometimes, it seems, Killian said. And only when Zan decides it is so. He tried to glare at Aya, but found he could barely even meet her eyes. Need any help getting out of there? She shook her head. I'll manage. And both of you. I kind of remember the things I said when I was on that stim and, well, I'm awful sorry if you took it the wrong way. Redwire actually laughed. I have no idea what you're talking about, he said. You showed nothing but courtesy and respect to someone who was trying to save your life, and I thank you for it. Aya's sheepish grin revealed her gratitude for Redwire letting her off the hook. I'll see you guys in the rumpus room, she said. Now, would you mind getting the hell out of the med bay? I don't know who put me in here naked, and I don't want to know, but no one gets to see me like this now that I'm awake. Killian gestured to the door. Red, let me show you my ship's lounge. They exited the med bay. Killian slid the door shut behind them, ensuring Aya's privacy. They walked down the corridor toward the lift. Killian's face still felt hot. He'd humiliated himself. Had he really wished for an entire planet to be destroyed? Back in the day, that was the kind of thing he'd fought against. Oh, Redwire said. Today's date. That means the Tier 1 season is over. How did we do? For all he'd endured in the borehole, the beatings, the questioning, the isolation, the torture, Killian knew Redwire and knew the worst thing the Bats had done was to keep the man in the dark about one of his life's passions. They hadn't told him anything about the Krakens. I have all the games, Killian said. All since you went out. Do you want me to tell you? Or do you want to watch? I'll make sure my crew doesn't say a thing to spoil the games for you. Redwire looked Killian in the eyes. I haven't seen you in decades, but I know you, killer. You've always been terrible at hiding your emotions. And I've got more important things to do than watch football games. Just tell me. Yes, this man had used football as cover for his work as a guild operative. But no one stayed in the GFL without working their ass off. Starter or not, Redwire had had an irreplaceable part of his life torn away from him. 
There was so much news to share with Redwire. The terrorist attack, the death of Kopor the Climber, and Coach Hokor. Too much news at once could be overwhelming, especially to a man cut off from his family. Killian decided to share just enough. You won it all, he said. A perfect season. You beat the Jacks in the Galaxy Bowl. Redwire smiled. Fantastic. I wish I could have been there for it. I assume Quentin played his ass off? And here was the news that would cut the deepest. The knowledge that, if he hadn't been arrested and imprisoned, Yitzhak Goldman could have played on the sport's grandest stage. Yeah, he did, but not in the way you'd expect, Killian said, his heart torn between pride in his son and pity for his old friend. Quentin hurt his throwing arm and played fullback. Becca Montaigne started. She scored the winning touchdown and was named Galaxy Bowl MVP. Redwire's smile faded. He looked down as they walked. He had been the second-string quarterback. When Quentin went down, it should have been Redwire's moment to finally shine at the sport's highest level. But Red had been arrested by the time that happened. Rebecca Montaigne made the most of that opportunity while Red had missed his chance. He nodded. That's good, he said. Becca deserved it, I'm sure, and an undefeated season. Amazing. Maybe I'll watch the game later, while we're in punch space. Maybe Killian would watch it with him. And before they played it, he would tell Redwire about all the awful things that had befallen his franchise. For now, though, there was something vastly more important to discuss. Aya's clothes were ruined. Blood-soaked, full of holes, and they stank of smoke. Goldman might have temporarily patched her up just fine, but when it came to her shirt, it wasn't exactly a tailor. She had a locker in the medbay. When she'd first signed on as the Oleron's comms operator, shortly after the ship had rescued her, an event Aya now knew had been orchestrated by Fanaka, who was real, real dead, Zan had insisted Aya keep a full change of clothes in that locker. That probably should have set off some alarm bells, but Aya had been oblivious, had been eager to do whatever Skipper, Beans, and Zan asked her to do. After her rescue, the Olerin's first stop had been at a Gans Prime Station, not the one the Ponsky sisters had blown up. She found it ironic she'd been rescued from a mall, yet had nothing more than the clothes on her back. Fortunately, Gans stations had everything spacefaring folk needed. Serviceable chain restaurants, like Taco Broil, which was her favorite, but she was hoping to try one of those Mr. Sam's Purist Nation barbecue places that rare Avis's freaks kept raving about. And they'd groceries, showers, rental fabrication and repair facilities, fuel, power, and, yes, even clothes. Skipper had given her some money, an advance on her wage as the comms operator. I had bought clothes. Maybe ship-stop clothes that mostly bore logos of alcohol, soft drinks, and impulse drive makers weren't the height of fashion, but she'd been forced to wear a uniform for most of her life and she didn't mind a bit. Aya had done as she'd been ordered and put a change of clothes in her locker. Since then, she'd been to more places and been able to upgrade her wardrobe, but she hadn't thought to replace this emergency stash. She looked at the black t-shirt. Sentient overboard beer, read the yellow and blue logo. 
She never even tried the stuff. Too bad she hadn't bought a trench warfare shirt. That would have been kind of cool, considering what they'd just been through. The t-shirt, some jeans, cheap sneakers, and a cheaper belt. Not even close to her style, but it would do. Getting dressed hurt, especially pulling on the jeans. Aya had been shot in the leg and the shoulder, so why did she hurt all over? Her body felt like it had when she'd suffered hangovers after watching Kraken's games with Skipper and Beans. She'd never had so much stim in one dose. That had to be the reason for the body ache. Oh, the things she had said. Goldman claimed he'd forgiven her, but everyone lied and there was no way of knowing for sure. Skipper had said nothing. He was probably mad, and with good reason. Her shoulder wound wasn't really all that bad. Fanaka's bullet had grazed Aya's right deltoid. No surgery needed. After a dip in the rejuve tank, that wound was already in decent shape. One more soak, and it would be like it never happened. If that bullet had been a half inch to the left, though, it would have destroyed her shoulder joint would have required multiple reconstructive surgeries. Pretty lucky. Could she really have been shot twice and count herself lucky? Yes, she could. Especially with the thigh wound. That bullet had almost killed her. She'd lost a lot of blood. Fortunately, when I had joined the crew, Zan had made her draw four pints of blood and store it in the med bay. Zan said it was mandatory practice that she, Skipper, and Beans had stores of their own aboard. At the borehole, Aya had been like a leaking tire. Now patched and refilled, she was almost back to full pressure. If keeping a store of clothes in the med bay should have set off alarms, storing four pints of blood in there should have set off screaming decompression klaxons. Live and learn. For now, anyway. But would she live through the next mission? Did she even want to be there for the next mission? She didn't know. And it probably didn't matter what she wanted. Zan wasn't going to cut her any slack. Skipper was nice enough, except for when he was a murdering psychopath, which was apparently a thing, and Beans only cared about his toys. And his milkiness, of course, but I couldn't hold that against the little guy. Skipper was the captain, but Zan called the shots more often than not. If that navigator didn't want Aya as a permanent member of the crew, then Aya was little more than a temporary guest. She took a step toward the door, winced at the shock of pain that went up her leg. How long would it feel like this? Maybe she could find some crutches. If Zan stored clothes and blood, she most likely made sure there were plenty of bandages and, yes, a crutch or two. Aya hobbled to the med bay door and slid it open. There, in the corridor, just outside the door, was a pile of junk. A pile of junk that was some kind of old tractor seat and two big tires. A wheelchair. A note on paper taped to the seat. Starling's Mujik Chair. Tears came fast. She wiped them away. Beans had made this for her. He'd misspelled magic, but that didn't matter. Did he actually care about her? Aya didn't dare let herself believe that. No one cared about her. Not really. 
People respected what she could do, like Fanaka had, but also tried to use her for those skills, like Fanaka had. Beans appreciated Aya's abilities. That didn't mean he cared, but it was something. Aya couldn't deny it. It was, at the very least, respect. She eased herself into the chair. It wasn't even remotely comfortable. She gave the wheels an experimental push. The chair rolled down the corridor, smooth as silk. Maybe it didn't look like much, but it was perfectly engineered. Aya wiped away another unexpected tear and rolled herself toward the lift. You have been listening to The Stone Wolves, a GFL novella. Written by Scott Sigler and J.C. Hutchins, performed by Scott Sigler. Follow Scott on Twitter and at Instagram, where he is at Scott Sigler, and on Facebook at facebook.com slash Scott Sigler. The Stone Wolves was directed by A. Sigler, engineered by Steve Rickyberg. Copyright 2021, Empty Set Entertainment. Theme music is the song Battle Cry by the band Super Weapon. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available.